Welcome to Rocking Your Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, a friend of mine told me about something rather strange. The other day, they were cooking dinner, and out of nowhere, from their kitchen speakers, I started booming. <laughs> right? Rocking Our Priors was next on their playlist, and so without either of us initiating any kind of conversation, I just started talking to them. And a friend of mine in Turkey, and she said, oh, I listen to your podcast when I'm going to get a cup of coffee. You know, <laughs> it's just like we're having a conversation. And it is a strangely asymmetric thing that you might be listening to me and, and knowing all these things that I'm up to without me necessarily knowing about you. And I wanted to say that if anyone ever wanted to talk about their experiences or observations, please just email me. I think I'm the, probably the least intimidating person in the world. Um, and I love it when people come and chat to me and, and share their experiences, right? I'm trying to understand the whole world. So every person's perspective is super, super useful. So please don't let this be asymmetric. If you'd like to chat to me, uh, just send me a message, okay? Right, without further ado, let's turn to culture and jobs in Asia. So female employment in India is extremely low. Men's honour depends on female chastity, and given weak job growth, female earnings are very paltry and thus provide insufficient compensation for that loss of honour. Families would rather maintain their prestige and place in vital networks than gain a handful of rupees. Female only employment will only rise when earnings are sufficiently high to compensate for men's loss of honour. Now, other scholars think I'm wrong. They think it's purely a function of low demand. Employers typically prefer men, typing them as more reliable and productive. So when crowds of men search for scant opportunities in railways or other government posts, women are left at the back of the queue. Now that is partly true. Mechanisation has lowered demand in agriculture, leading rural female employment to plummet. Neither industry nor services have been sufficiently labour-hungry to absorb surplus labour. Jobs are scarce, no question about it. But culture is also hugely important. This mediates families' willingness to send their daughters to school and let them seize economic opportunities. Where male honour is primary and depends on female seclusion, women stay at home. Let me illustrate with a comparison with China. Now, China was historically patrilineal, just like India. And since descent was traced down the male line, great care was taken to remove suspicions of female promiscuity. Unmarried women were thus surveilled. Sons, meanwhile, were revered as scions of the family line, provided for aging parents and performed ancestral rituals. But Chinese families had a stronger preference to exploit female labour. That small difference in culture mediated families' responses to economic opportunities. So back in 1990, the two countries had very similar GDP per capita. Um, but even at that time, even in 1990, the gender gap in education was far smaller in China. Families were far more willing to fund their daughter's education and permit them to travel. India's gender gap was comparatively much larger. 
It is now closed, however. Rising male education builds up demand for female education, as grooms want educated wives to school their children. Uh, if you look at my Substack, there's a, I, I show graphs from a very nice new MBER paper by Barbara Fraumeni. And she shows these gender gaps in education and also employment. So I wanted to talk about her paper because it's very nice descriptive data. She plots these gender gaps uh, from 1990 to present for all the different regions of, of Asia. And as, as you'll see on the substack, India is not alone. More patriarchal regions typically have larger gender gaps in education. So Western Asia, patrilineal, Muslim, conservative, patriarchal, big gender gaps in 1990. Whereas bilateral matrilineal Southeastern Asia, where there is parity, no, no gender gap whatsoever. So culture is hugely important in terms of gender gaps in education. It's not about, it's not just about wealth, poverty, etc. It's culture. Uh, Frameni, Barbara Frameni, also constructs a genie gender coefficient, which uh, she defines as the gender distribution of human capital among educated people. And that Gini coefficient is much, much larger in more patriarchal cultures, namely Southern Asia and uh, Western Asia. Whereas in uh, Southeastern Asia and Eastern Asia, since 1990, there's almost been total parity. So this same pattern holds for employment. When China was just as poor as India in 1990, the gender gap in youth employment was zero. Even though available earnings were fairly meagre, Chinese families were much more willing for their wives and daughters to work. Now, you may object that GDP per capita is not a perfect proxy for economic opportunities since China had a large share of state-owned enterprises. Fair, I agree. But the trend holds more broadly, irrespective of state-owned enterprises. So if you look at all these different countries in 1990, the gender gap in youth, in youth employment and unemployment is much, much bigger in patrilineal countries like Western Asia and Southern Asia, whereas it's much, much smaller in Southeast Asia. So culture is hugely important. So I, I really recommend Barbara Fraumeni's very nice a descriptive paper in MBR. It really shows how important culture is and how it varies right across uh, Asia in shaping female labor force participation and education. Okay, so that was just a brief podcast from me. And let me close by adding again, let it not be so asymmetric. Please, if you'd like to chat, you know, just send me a message because I'm not remotely scary. Okay, take care. Bye.